Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here and to learn about your word, about a very important and actually even a very serious subject. And I pray, Father, that you would help us and guide us in this time um, to um, understand what's going on and to apply it to our lives in the best possible way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. You guys know Justin Bieber? I hope you do. Pop star, American icon. He is a teen sensation. Either you love him or you hate him, okay? That's usually the way it goes. Justin Bieber has taken the world by storm, and he continues to have influence um, in the pop culture through his music, his fashion, even his hairdo or something like that, right? Um, I mean, he even has, has his own slogan, right? Bieber fever, right? Have you guys heard that? Bieber fever? No? You guys have never heard that before? I think it's probably an older slogan, but it's, a, it's been around. But one of the ways that he influences the modern culture is not as well known. He actually influences the culture through his religious affiliation. I don't know if you guys realize this, but Justin Bieber is religious, okay? And some of you guys might, might not even know this, but Justin Bieber claims to be a Christian. He claims to be a Christian, okay? And, and this got exposed recently in interviews when Bieber talked openly about his desire to change his worldly lifestyle and have a personal relationship with God. He did. In one interview, Bieber is recorded as saying, I personally love Jesus and that was my salvation. We have the greatest healer of all time and his name is Jesus Christ and he really heals. That's what he said. And it sounds kind of good, doesn't it? Sounds kind of good. Although I'd kind of be curious to, you know, see what he means by all that, but it sounds good on the surface. But Justin Bieber appears to have given his life to Christ. Uh, but as we know very, very well, just because you claim to be a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that you are a Christian, right? Uh, just because you profess to be a Christian doesn't make it, doesn't guarantee your salvation. Uh, Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you are a Christian. Uh, allow me to share a little bit more about what Justin Bieber believes about God and his Christian faith. This is what Justin Bieber believes about sex outside of marriage. He says, I don't think you should have sex with anyone. And I was like, hey, that's good. But he continues, unless you love them. Okay, so if you love someone, it's okay to have sex with them even if you're not married? Is that what's going on? Uh, that's not what the Bible says, so I don't know about that. Here's what Justin Bieber believes about abortion. I don't believe in abortion. Great, that's awesome. But when asked what a woman should do if she was raped and wants to have an abortion, Bieber said, I guess I haven't been in that position before. So I wouldn't be able to judge that. So you can actually excuse abortion if someone's actually raped. So we're just going to add sin on top of sin here. That's not going to work. That's not what the Bible says at all. And here's what Justin Bieber says about homosexuality. It's everyone's own decision. It's everyone's own decision. Well, obviously, we know that that's not what the Bible says either, right? Just because you make a profession of faith doesn't mean you're serious about your walk with the Lord. 
Now, I'm not here to determine whether Justin Bieber is a Christian or not. I'm not going to say, like, well, I think he is a Christian or I think he's not a Christian necessarily. Uh, I'm bringing him to your attention because he's a popular public icon in our culture that most American Christianity has embraced as one of their own. Okay? And, and they've done so without thought, without any examination of what he really believes, um, what, re- what he really believes the gospel is and what the Christian life is all about. And so Justin Bieber is, is sort of a prototype for a phenomenon that you are growing up in and that I like to call casual Christianity. Casual Christianity. Uh, many people in America identify themselves or they love to identify with themselves with Christianity. You'll hear it all the time at your schools, even public schools. Uh, I love, um, uh, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I love Jesus. I believe in the Bible, that kind of stuff. You'll hear that all the time. But when you compare what they believe with how they live their lives, you notice a stark contrast. Stark contrast. It's almost as if they, what they b- really believe uh, really isn't important to them because it hasn't changed their lives. It hasn't changed their lives. Uh, they believe that Jesus died on a cross and, uh, for their sins, but they're still you know, sleeping around with their boyfriend and girlfriend. It happens. They believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but they openly embrace homosexuality, which the Bible clearly labels a sin. They affirm that the Bible is the word of God, but they ignore parts of it or they change, they change the Bible to try to fit their lifestyle. That goes on all the time in our Christian churches. Not at this Christian church, but at some Christian churches. Today's Christianity treats God casually, and you were born smack dab in the middle of this fiasco. You're in the middle of it right now. And casual Christianity rubs off on you more than you think it does. It really does. It influences the way you think, the way you talk. It impacts what you do. It even influences the way you emote, like, like your, even your emotions. Uh, so your emotions are even custom ordered by casual Christianity itself, okay? So I want us to take stock this morning in serious inventory of our lives and examine how we have fallen prey to casual Christianity. How have you become susceptible to casual Christianity, okay? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at the third commandment in the New Testament. And last week, I introduced to you the third commandment from the Old Testament. And that theme dominates, um, the, sorry, the theme that dominates the third commandment is that we need to take God seriously. We need to take God seriously. But as we jump on a plane and cross the ocean into the New Testament this morning, I need to remind us of something so that we don't kind of end up in the wrong place. We don't misunderstand what's going on here. The Old Testament contains the Ten Commandments, right? You guys know this. We've been going through this, the Ten Commandments. Those commandments are found in what is called the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses. And this law applied to the nation of Israel. They were required to follow it, right? We know this. But this law and these commandments weren't just specific rules. Uh, They pointed to bigger principles that tell us something about God. Okay? And and that's important for us to take notice because when we get to the New Testament, the Bible says that we are no longer bound to the law of Moses. 
you're no longer bound to the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you realize that, but you don't have to follow Ten Commandments, not even one of them, because it's, it's a part of the law of Moses. And so it doesn't have jurisdiction over you. We kind of used that word a long time ago, right? Much like a law in Ohio would never have juris- jurisdiction over you because you live in California, um, the law of Moses doesn't have jurisdiction over you because you aren't in Israel. You're not an Israelite. You're not a Jew. So it doesn't apply to you. The Ten Commandments don't apply to you. And, but that doesn't mean that just because, let's say, for example, you live in California, that doesn't mean you don't have laws you have to follow because, just because you don't live in Ohio, right? Like, for example, we, I used the illustration before. You can't, like, uh, I think, swallow a goldfish in Ohio or something like that. You know, it doesn't, you, like, it's, but in California, you could probably totally do it, like, because it's not a law, right? So the law in Ohio to swallow a goldfish doesn't apply to you. But what's the principle behind the law of swallowing a goldfish? Well, I don't know. It's, it's to try to save the life of a goldfish or something like that or to, to, to just keep yourself safe because it's dangerous or something. I don't know. Well, that same principle of safety for both you and the fish, okay, is a principle that California still abides by. It just shows up in different laws. Like, you know, don't, you know, don't, um, send a car speeding, de- speeding over 65 miles per hour down a freeway without someone in the, in the driver's seat. That's a law in California. You're not allowed to do that. What, but what's the principle behind it? It's safety, which is the same principle of the goldfish. Yeah, they're two completely different laws, but the principle is the same. And so what we learn is the law of Moses. Here, yeah, okay, I guess we'll call it this way. Law of Moses, which has like the Ten Commandments, Okay, and then we have in the New Testament what's called the law of Christ, and we have different commands in the law of Christ. They all point to the same principle. Okay, they all point to the same principle. So you're not allowed to, you're not required to follow the law of Moses because you're not an Israelite, but you are a Christian, and so you need to follow the law of Christ. You are a Christ eon, okay? You're, you're a part of Christ. You're, you're a follower of Christ. There are commands in the New Testament that are similar to the commands of the Ten Commandments because they are uh, approaching the very same principles as those Ten Commandments, okay? We've talked about those principles already. The first commandment, what's the, what's the, first, what's the main principle of the first commandment? That God is highest. He's highest. He's the best. And that's the same principle we find in the New Testament. And so that's, that's, that's kind of the, the, the vantage point that we, we need to have here. We follow the New Testament law, the law of Christ, because it reflects very accurately the law of Moses. But we're not obligated necessarily to follow letter by letter the, the law of Moses because we're not bound to it, okay? So that, that's kind of how that works if you're ever wondering, like, What's going on here? Why are we looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament as separate things? That's why, okay? That's why. So keep this in mind because we want to parachute now into the New Testament and see the Third Commandment. And there's a lot of places we could go to look at the Third Commandment in the New Testament. Uh, We could go to like to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, which is the clearest, the absolute clearest example of where we see the Third Commandment kind of reflected in the New Testament. Uh, It says there, this is Jesus speaking, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to uh, to those of old, 
You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, remember what the third commandment is? What's the third commandment? Someone tell me. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Well, that's, that's the idea of swearing an oath. So we have here in the, in, the, in the New Testament, you shall not swear falsely. And he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We could go there this morning because it's the clearest example. But I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I want to take you on a different path this morning. And it's a path that we've taken quite a few times already. I want to tell you a story from the Bible itself. Because I think stories bring this, give it so much more color and give it so much more explanation. Uh, it shows you how it works. So this story is going to be quite dark. It's going to be quite serious, okay? And unlike some of the other stories, which actually have some humor in them, because people do some really dumb stuff um, in the Bible, it's, it's true. Uh, this one is actually just pretty serious overall. Um, it, but, but it's a good story, and I think you'll really learn a lot from it. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses, um, uh, really just verses 1 through 6 this morning to kind of see an illustration of the third commandment in play, okay? Acts chapter 5. And as you turn there, let me kind of give you some background here. The book of Acts didn't just come into our Bibles all by itself, okay? You see, the, the book of Acts is a sequel. It's a sequel. I don't know if you realize it, but it's a sequel. Kind of like Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice is a sequel to another movie called The Man of Steel. Um, L- Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke, to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And, and so the Gospel of Luke tells us about the life of Jesus, obviously. We, we probably know this. And Acts tells us about the life of, ch- of the church after Jesus, okay? And so it's kind of a... It's a, it's, it's, it's a two-part series here. So, and what happens here is that Luke shares a similar theme to the book of Acts. And that theme is changing history. Changing history. There's a lot of people, in his, there's a lot of people who have changed history over, over time, right? Guys like Alexander the Great have changed history. Martin Luther in 1500s changed history. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., the other Martin Luther, he changed history for America, right? Uh, there's a lot of people who have changed history. There is no one who has changed history more than Jesus Christ. No one. Jesus is the, is the one person in history who has really changed everything. Everything. And that's what the Gospel of Luke is all about. That Jesus transforms history. Uh, he's the biggest game changer the world has ever known. His presence, his life, his death... His resurrection, no one's ever raised themselves from the dead, completely shatters the way the world works. Um, Think about this. Whereas once the world was bound to sin and living in darkness, doomed to eternal destruction, everyone was on a path to hell. Jesus actually realistically transformed the fate of the planet, which should be destroyed, 
and also transforms the fate of anyone who calls on the name of the Lord who should be thrown in hell. Jesus changes all that. He changes all that. And, and that's what the book of Luke is all about. Jesus changes history. Acts continues that same theme. Acts 1.1 opens with this very line. In the first book, which is Luke, O Theophilus, that's the guy Luke is writing to, um, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke, who's the author of, Acts and, and, of Luke and Acts, um, tells a man named Theophilus that the first book he wrote, which is Luke, tells us about all the things Jesus began to do and teach. Now, if you've read the book of Luke, you know that it tells you about Jesus, Jesus's life from when he was born to when he died and rose again. Well, that's pretty much the sum of Jesus's life. Why does Luke say that he, tell, that he told a story of what Jesus began to do and teach, not finished to do and teach? In other words, it's like Luke didn't tell the entire story of Jesus. There's something missing. There's something more that needs to be said. But Jesus' life is over now. He's going to ascend into heaven. What's more to be said? The church is the continuation of Jesus himself. The church is the extension of Jesus changing history. I don't know if you guys realize that, but that's what the church is all about. The church is here in this world to show that Jesus actually does legitimately change history, that he does save people from their sins, that there is a way to be in a right relationship with God, that there is a time coming in the future where God is going to restore this entire world and break the pattern of sin and the patterns of the curse. In other words, there's going to come a time when you're no longer going to have a cold. There's going to come a time when you no longer have to struggle through school, through school and stuff like that. There's going to come a time when you're not going to, you know, roll your ankle, you know, at, at a, you know, during capture the flag or something like that. There's going to come that time. Why? Because Jesus changed history and we as a church get to proclaim that. Okay. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And the way that the book of Acts kind of portrays this very, very um, clearly is through one word, one word that's repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And that word is the word name, name. Name shows up everywhere. And it shouldn't be any surprise to us because we talked about name two weeks ago. Think about the third commandment. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Is that a coincidence? No, it's not. What is the book of Acts talking about? The third commandment is still alive and well today. And the church is proclaiming the third commandment as operating even today in our Christian circles. In other words, the name of, of God is so important and we want to treat it the way it should be treated. Okay, So the name is very important. And I kind of mentioned to you that last week that the, na the name um, is important because names in the Bible tell you what kind of people they are, you know? Remember I told you what Solomon means? What does Solomon mean? Peace. That's right. Good. Peace. What does Jonah mean? Dove. Dove yeah. And why is that so important? Because doves are stupid. That's right. And Jonah was, a, was acted pretty stupid. So that's right. That's, that, that's, that's what it means. I talked to you about what Yahweh means. Yahweh means that he, God is self-existent. He's a relational God. 
Um, and that's why God makes such a big deal about the third commandment. Well, in the opening chapters of Acts, guess what we find? We find the mention of the name all over the place. And it's no less important now than it was back then. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the very first sermon for the church. And in his message, he quotes Joel 2.32. Not this Joel, but the book of Joel. And he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. That's very important. Peter links arms with the prophet Joel and he says, the way that you get saved is, is by calling on the name of the Lord. And so he doesn't just say call on the Lord. He says call on the name of the Lord. The name itself is important. And from Acts 2 and onward, this name continues to show up as a dominant theme until we reach our chapter, Acts chapter 5. Let me just kind of give you a smattering of what's going on here, okay? So you can kind of get an idea of why the name is important. Acts 2.38 says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the name of Jesus Christ is the name that you get baptized in, which means that Jesus Christ becomes your identity. His name becomes your name. That's what baptism symbolizes. You identify with Christ now. You're a Christ eon. You're a Christian, right? Uh, and so it forces you to repent of your sinful lifestyle and join Christ's lifestyle, which is symbolized by baptism. Um, Acts 3.6 says that Peter um, talks to a disabled man, and he says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And guess what happens? He just stays there, right? He just stays on the ground, doesn't walk. No, he actually gets up and walks because the name of Jesus Christ is powerful. It's not just who you identify with. The name itself actually has power. Like it actually had, can change the molecular structure of your body. It defies the laws of physics. You guys realize that? The name of Jesus Christ does that. The name of Jesus Christ actually changes things in the world, real things, real people. Jesus, the name of Jesus is powerful. In chapter four, the name really shows up everywhere. Like it becomes the, the most critical theme throughout the entire chapter. Uh, there are certain Pharisees that ask Peter, by what name did you do this miracle to this man who now walks around? And he says, by the name of Jesus Christ, does this man stand before you well? And then he says this in verse 12. And this is probably a common verse you might be familiar with. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And here we learn a very important principle. The name of Jesus is not just your identity. It's not just powerful. It's also something that we call polarizing. It's polarizing. And what that means is that Jesus' name is so powerful that it actually creates a dividing line between his allies and his enemies. In other words, it's not just like you can think, oh, you know, here, I'll write over here. I'm either with Jesus or I'm against Jesus or, you know what? I'm just kind of neutral. I don't know where I stand, okay? 
a lot of people think they can be this way. Uh, I like Jesus, so I'm, I'm kind of with him, or, or, or I, I am with him, or I kind of like him, but I don't really know where I stand, so I'm just going to stay in the middle, or I really hate him. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. The name of Jesus does this. It only creates two different camps. You're either with him or you're against him. That's what the name of Jesus does. It divides people into two different camps. And so uh, if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy or read the books at all, uh, you know about the one ring to rule them all, right? How many of you guys have seen the movies before? Okay, good, most of you. Anyone read the books? Okay, a few of you. So maybe you're not going to be so familiar with this, but, but here's, you can still get the principle. Uh, the ring of power, it's all, the Lord of the Rings is all about one ring, okay? The ring of power forces all of the land, all of what's called Middle Earth, into two camps, okay? You either end up joining Sauron, to, which is the evil villain bad guy dude, to crush all other peoples, which a lot of people do, a lot of the orcs do it, and a lot of the people from the south do it and stuff. Or you join the fellowship to stop his mad conquest, okay? And so you see like a like you know a couple of hobbits trying to take the ring and throw it into the fire. And you see like you know Legolas and his elven people are allying with him, and Aragorn and his you know men of Gondor, and you know Gimli and his you know. His, <laughs> that's right. So you, know, you get the picture. Well, this isn't the one ring to rule them all, okay? But this is the one name to rule them all. This is the one name to rule them all. And it's better because it's real. It's real. It actually does stuff. Uh, you're either for him or you're against him. His name either stimulates love in your heart for him or it strikes fear in your heart against him. It's one or the other. You can't have a middle ground. You can't say, well, I like to be a Christian, but I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. It doesn't work like that. And we know that from the principle of the third commandment we learned last time, that what's what's the whole idea of the third commandment? You take God seriously because you're either for him or you're against him. And if you say you're for him, but you act like against him, what are you really? You're against him. And that's the principle that we learn in Acts chapter 4, and that's where we get to a very critical story in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. The question is, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? And that's the question that's floating around in the back of our minds when we get to Acts chapter 5. But here's the thing. Here's the catch to to it all. It's not that easy to spot whose side everybody's on. Some people can fake being on the right side. And it's very, very difficult to figure that out. Now, there are, there's only two camps. There's only two camps. You're either for him or you're against him. But sometimes it's hard to figure out who's who. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 5. So look at Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Okay? Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Sold a piece of property. Here we encounter another name. And you're probably familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira to some degree or another. Um, But here's another name, a a man named Ananias. Notice it says named, named. The idea of name has been showing up everywhere. Now it shows up with this guy, Ananias. So this is quite a different name. 
This isn't the one name to rule them all. This isn't the name uh, that is powerful, uh, that, is, uh, that gives you your identity, that draws people either to Jesus or drives them away from Jesus. This is a different name. And the question that you should have in your mind is, what kind of person will Ananias be? Will he be, will this name, Ananias, join the one name to rule them all? Or will he be opposed to the one name? Well, our story initially paints a good picture of Ananias. He and his wife, Sapphira, sell a piece of property. And the idea behind this is they're going to sell this piece of property to give money to the church. That's what they're going to do, which sounds like a good thing, right? Sounds like a good, it's a good thing to give money to church. It's a nice gesture. But the story turns ugly pretty quick. It only takes the next verse for us to realize that Ananias and Sapphira are not all they're cooked up to be. Look at verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's what's going on here. Ananias and Sapphira promised the church all the proceeds they would get from selling the property. And then they sell it, but then something gets into Ananias' head, and he holds back part of what he got from selling the property. Okay? So basically, the idea is he lied. He said he was going to give all the money, and he only gave part of it. And he's trying to deceive the church. You know, maybe he thought to himself, you know, I just w- I want to get a new Mustang or something like that, right? And you're like, well, Mustangs? Mustangs didn't exist back then. Right, they didn't exist back then. But real Mustangs existed, right? Horses. So maybe he wanted to get a new horse. I don't know. I'm just joking. I don't know. I'm, 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 we don't know exactly what got into his head here, okay? The text doesn't tell us, but it doesn't matter what his reason is. That's not important. Uh, he could have had the best intentions in the world. He could have, you know, held that money back to give to his mom who was sick or something like that and, and to pay for her hospital bills. I don't know. But he didn't. And it doesn't matter whether that was the reason or not. The point is that he lied. That's the point. He promised the full proceeds, and then he had second thoughts and carried, and then, um, and then carried that out. Well, Peter sees right through this. He sees right through it. And in verse 3, if you read along with me, he says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. He said, you lied, Ananias. You lied. And verse 4 tells us the problem with this wasn't that he wasn't willing to give everything to the church. It's not that Peter was like, you should have given everything you own to the church. That's not the problem. Peter says, you could, you could have given $1,000, Ananias. You could have only given $10. I don't care. It doesn't matter how much you give. The point is that you promised this much, and then you only gave this much. That's the problem. But that's not the biggest tragedy of all. The biggest tragedy of all is that Peter, uh, Peter doesn't really care so much that Ananias lied. That's not what irks him so much. The biggest tragedy is that Ananias, this is what happens with Ananias. Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie against the Holy Spirit. Satan. Whoa, that sounds harsh. That's harsh. And it is harsh. And this might remind you of another verse in the Bible. 
Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Who are we supposed to be filled with as Christians? The Holy Spirit. What is Ananias filled with? Satan. Satan. And so really what, what Peter's doing is saying, uh, Ananias, you look like this, but you're really this. You're not for the name. You're against the name because you're allying yourself with Satan. With Satan. It's like, wow, that's, that's crazy. But that's what's going on here. Ananias treated Christ, the name he professed to love, casually. Casually. And Ananias looked the part. He claimed to be a Christian. He sold all the property and promised all the funds to the church. And you can't get much more spiritual than that. You can't. But whose side was he really on? Whose side was he really on? He was not on the one, one name side. Not at all. Listen, you can be a halfway Christian. You can be halfway involved in church. You can be halfway committed to Christ. And you can still be satanic. You can still be satanic. The church is filled with people who are allying themselves with Satan. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And so verse 5 tells us the consequences of what happens, which I'm sure you're very familiar with that, this part of the story. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. God literally sucked the life out of him at that very moment. And verses 6 through 11 tell us that the same thing happens to his wife, Sapphira, because she was aware of it, and she lied to Peter as well. And so there are plenty of Ananias and Sapphira's, uh, Ananiases and Sapphira's in the church today, people who don't take God seriously and get in the way of the church. But obviously, here's the thing. This is kind of interesting. We don't find people dropping down the spot today. You know, it's not like when you lie, like you die instantly. Like, and the question is, like, why is that? Why, why does that happen? Why does that not happen? And let me just kind of answer this question because it might be kind of rolling around your head. Um, you have to realize Ananias and Sapphira lived in a very critical moment in the history of the church. Um, entrepreneurs will tell you the most important moment in a business is when you're trying to get it off the ground, right? Because it's most risky. I was actually talking with uh, Josh's brother, Matt Bird, uh, just a, like a week or so ago, and he started his own company just recently. And, um, and he was really excited about it and everything like that. But the thing that stuck out to me was when he voiced his concern about how insecure his business uh, was at this very early stage. It's very insecure. You see, the, the beginning of a business is the most insecure time. Not everyone knows about your business. There's no guarantee people are going to get on board right away with it or like what you have to sell. That's just the facts about it. It's risky, but if you do it right, it's very rewarding. The beginning of the church was no different. It's very risky. The church must get off to a good start or else it's going to tank right away. And Ananias and Sapphira posed serious threats to the church and, and in progress in the progress of the church. And, and at a time when the church was most vulnerable. And so God would have none of it. And he killed them on the spot because they were huge liabilities to the church at a very important stage. So that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore because the church is not in its infancy. It's, 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 it's accomplished its main mission in the book of Acts, which is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's done its job. And so we don't see that kind of thing happen anymore. 
But it doesn't mean that this, that this sin isn't less important today. It still is important today. It came at a whopping price of two lives back then. It could come at a devastating price of one soul today. And so we have to keep that in mind. The third commandment, as we see in the New Testament, isn't a baby sin that we can just shrug off. When you treat God casually, you're in danger of sucking both yourself and the entire church into a wormhole of disillusionment. That's what you're doing. But you might say to me, James, I don't act like Ananias. I don't, I don't think Satan's filling my heart and making me, you know, against the church. And I'm trying to live for Christ. And I love him. And I love the church. I want to be here and serve the Lord. That's great. Praise the Lord. But let me share with you uh, some cautions, each and every one of you this morning, so you don't toe the line of casual Christianity, okay? So you don't toe the line of casual Christianity. So with our time remaining, let me show you three ways that we commonly treat God casually, okay? Three ways that we commonly treat God casually and therefore walk a dangerous line between standing with God and standing against him. Number one, we read our Bibles casually. We read our Bibles casually. Um, There was a survey put out a couple years ago about how often Christians read their Bibles, and the results are kind of shocking. Um, 19% read their Bibles daily, 25 read their Bibles a few times a week, 14% read their Bibles once a month, 22% read their Bibles once a month, or maybe just or maybe a few times a month, 19% read their Bibles rarely or never. And I would venture to say the vast majority of those who claim to read their Bibles are either straight up lying, exaggerating, or only read their Bibles for like 15 minutes a day or something like that, which in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot. And this comes from a generation that has 4.4 Bibles per home. So we have Bibles coming out our ears, but we just don't care about it. And, that's, and so one of the most ironic facts in the church today is that access to the Bible is the highest it's ever been, and yet so is biblical illiteracy, meaning that people don't know their Bibles because they don't read them. That's what's crazy. We have more opportunity to read the Bible than anyone else ever has, and yet, strangely enough, we read it less than anyone ever did. That's the truth. Most Christians don't touch their Bibles very often, and those that do often don't know how to read it. Uh, We have a casual attitude toward our Bibles, and it's not just some Christians out there. It has even infiltrated our own ranks, our own house. I'm not talking about the hypothetical Christian out there. I'm not talking about your friend that goes to a different church. I'm talking about us. It impacts us. We're lazy. We're lazy when it comes to the Bible. We make up all kinds of excuses. You know, I, I've made, up, made these excuses myself. I've, you know, got too much going on. Maybe I'll get around to it later. I'm too tired. I'll think I'll sleep another 30 minutes. I get too bored. Where's the Xbox One? You know, that's, that's kind of the attitude we have. What's your excuse? We're lazy. We're casual. We're not serious about it. Like Ananias, we kind of put forth some effort, but then we hold some back. We hold some back. That's not the attitude of treating the name of the Lord seriously. That's treating it casually. That's treating it like Ananias. That's saying that you align yourself with, with, with people who are against God, not for him. So third commandment, in the, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, they beg you to take God seriously. 
Really, the way you could say that is, make him your priority. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. Not sparsely, not briefly, richly. For the, wor- the word of, for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, you must make it a priority. You must make it a priority. You must be disciplined. And I know I'm kind of deep beating a dead horse here because we talked about this in Unstained a, little bit, uh, a couple weeks ago. But honestly, I can't stress this enough. Carve out some time to read your Bible. And I'm not trying to make you a legalist here. I'm not trying to say, like, do this every day, and if you don't, God's going to, like, strike you dead or something like that. That's not the way it works, right? But listen, think about it this way. Reading your Bible is not a Christian duty. It's not a Christian duty. It's a Christian necessity. It's a Christian necessity. You need it. You need the Bible. So read it. Don't read it. Don't treat God casually in this way. Okay? Number two, I would also say this. We pray casually. We pray casually. Um, Another poll conducted showed that 75% of the people polled claimed to be Christians. 64% claimed to pray at least once a day. 79% claimed that they pray most often at home. 38% claimed that the purpose of prayer is intimacy with God, and so on and so forth. Those numbers actually look pretty good with prayer. Prayer is something in our culture that Christians like to do. They like to pray, you know, maybe not a lot, but but on, on, on a consistent amount of uh, occasion, they, they like to pray. Our Christian culture actually does pretty well with prayer, but the reason it does so may not be what you think. Our American secular culture tells us that prayer is important because it's an, impo- an important part of your spiritual and physical health. They actually think like meditation and prayer is actually helpful to you. It actually like makes you feel better and like makes you like more relaxed and stuff. So like prayer is encouraged all the time in our culture. And so American Christianity thinks, oh, prayer is a good thing because our culture thinks it's a good thing and it makes me feel better. Well, that may be true, but that's not the purpose of prayer. That's not. And, and that's actually treating prayer casually because it becomes all about me and not about who? The one name, Jesus Christ. That's what prayer is about. It's about ascribing praise and honor and glory and thanksgiving to God and to God alone. Prayer is not about me. That doesn't mean like we don't actually ask for things from God. Lord, please help me with this. This is really hard. It's true, we do. But we always focus it and center it around Jesus Christ because he is the name that we identify with. He is the power that has saved us from our sins. And he is the one we ally ourselves with. So just because you pray often doesn't mean you are serious about the Lord. Uh, Take the Pharisee from Luke 18, for example. Um, He prayed and he prayed often. We talked about this guy a lot. Um, He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee prayed all the time. But what does Jesus say about him? He didn't go home right with God. He went home not right with God. He prayed, but he wasn't right with God. He was a hypocrite. And so he looked like he was serious about prayer, but what was he actually really serious about? Himself. Himself. And that's really bottom line. 
what the problem with the third commandment is, that you're all focused on yourself. When you don't take God seriously, what are you saying? Well, the only person that I really take seriously is myself. That's it. Because I really don't see God as highest. I don't, I don't treat him as, as the best. And so really all the Ten Commandments begin to kind of collapse at this point. Three, two, one, they all go out the window. And so we need to be Christians who are serious about prayer because we take God seriously and we don't want to treat him casually. First uh, Peter 4, 7 says this, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. Literally, you could say take ownership of your thoughts and your attitudes so that you will pray and you will pray effectively. Master your inner person. Master it. Control it so that you can take God seriously when you speak to him. Um, We're so prone to be out of control. That's our culture. Chaos. We love chaos. We love spontaneity and spur of the moment and just whatever comes, which isn't always bad. It's fun. But we're so, we take all that and we import it into our Christian lives too. And we're so, we're not disciplined enough. We don't care enough about God. We say, well, it's too hard to pray. It's boring. Uh, I've I've got too much to to do and and think about right now. What will I say? And we invent ways to diminish the value of prayer. Uh, we'll, we'll, We'll say things like, Lord, help me ace this math test, and God, give me a safe trip on this road trip, and Father, give me strength for this sports game. Those prayers are okay, but please pray those, but how often are your prayers full of requests, requests to God about yourself? How often are your prayers actually prayers to God about Him? You know, praying about His character. He, he's gracious. He's righteous. He's good. He's sovereign. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's just. He's noble. He's victorious. How often do you pray for others? And not just about their physical condition like broken legs or something, you know, Sorry, Darren, but, um, but there's spiritual condition too. How often do you pray for, this, pray for the spiritual condition of your friends? Lord, please allow so-and-so to grow in, in the knowledge of your word. God, I ask that you would strengthen the faith of my friend today and that he will be bold for Christ. Father, please comfort my friend's broken heart today with comfort that only you can give her through your Holy Spirit. That's radical, and that's treating Christ the way he should be treated seriously because you love him so it's not just reading your bible it's also your prayer life but it's also number three the way we do church we attend church casually we attend church casually and i think some now some people treat church casually by not showing up very often Um, that's one way to do it but you probably don't have that problem right now because you're here for one and and two, because you probably didn't drive yourself here unless you're Caleb, um, who probably could drive himself. You didn't drive yourself here either? So yeah, so probably you drove here. Someone else drove you here, okay? So you don't have a choice to be here. You're stuck with me preaching to you, okay? That's just the reality. But here's the thing. Just because you're here doesn't mean you're here, okay? Just because you're here doesn't mean you're here. You can check out even before we get things started. You can be just kind of like, uh, I don't know, like what's going on. And, you know, you can be, you know, sleeping in the back or you can be, you know, I don't know, checking your phone or whatever. It happens. 
I mean, think about it. We do this all the time, even in school. Uh, I've been guilty of this too, okay? So I'm not just like throwing you guys under the bus here, but you know, there's times like when you get distracted in class, you start daydreaming, you look at the clock, you pull out your iTouch or whatever, you, st you check Snapchat, you know, you text your friend, you know, you whisper to the, your friend, you know, you, you do the old school way, you, pat you throw a note or whatever to somebody or whatever. You know, who knows? Just because you're here doesn't mean you really are. And we've talked about this before. We've actually mentioned this, but there is a protocol for how you need to act when you're at church. And it's not like specific rules necessarily that the Bible gives us, but you should treat church seriously. This should be the time of the week that you take most seriously because it's a time we come together as a church. God wants us to come together to worship him, to pour our hearts out to him and worship to him, to listen attentively to the preaching of the word. This is the most important part of the week. Do you take this part seriously? Do you take it seriously? And here's a couple of ways that, that, that kind of gauge whether you do so or not. Are you listening? Are you listening when, when, when someone's teaching or preaching? Are you paying attention? Are you tracking what the, what the, what's the preacher saying? Are you taking notes? Uh, do you write important things down about the message? Do you write down ways that you want to grow? Not just facts about the sermon, but even things like, hey, I need to actually grow in this way in my, in my Christian life. And, and let, me, I, let me actually even write down a couple of ways I can actually do that right now. Do you sing nice and loud? Or are you just kind of like, oh, you know, Jesus, Savior. And it's like, so like inaudible, it's like, you know, I know like some of us don't have great voices. I probably have the worst voice out of all of us, okay? It's bad. But I try to sing loud when I can, okay? When I can. And I can't always do that because I don't always feel good. And when I sing loudly, it actually makes me feel really bad all the time. So sometimes I can't even sing, but I want to sing. I so badly want to sing. I so badly want to belt it to heaven if I can't help it. Do you have that attitude? Do you sing loudly? You know, do you come on time? Even timeliness uh, is important. Um, and, and you're like, well, I don't have a choice. My parents bring me. Ask your parents to come earlier. It's going to blow their world. They're like, you want to come early to church? Yeah, like, it, it, I want to be able to actually fellowship with people. I want to make sure I'm on time so I don't miss anything. Great. You know, do you, do you come to church sleepy, exhausted, tired? That happens. Hey, it happens to me all the time, okay? My church started at 8.30, 8.30 all the time uh, when I was back at Grace Community Church, 8.30. And I had to be there at 7.30 to set things up. So actually, I had to wake up at like at least 6 o'clock to be able to get down to church on time and make it happen. I lived half an hour away too, so at least that. If there was traffic, it was longer. So I understand what it's like to be tired, okay, because I was tired all the time. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you're like, man, I just I feel like I struggle coming to, to church and I, I don't feel awake and stuff like that. Here's the thing you can do. This is a little trick that I learned when I was actually back at my home church. Sunday mornings, Sunday morning begins Saturday night. Sunday morning begins Saturday night. Think about that, okay? Get to bed on time. Treat Sunday morning special by treating Saturday night special. And say, I'm not going to, you know, stay up till 12 o'clock you know, watching a movie or playing a video game or, or, you know, texting friends or calling them, whatever. 
I'm going to go to bed at a decent time so I can get plenty of sleep, get up in the morning, and be refreshed and ready for church. Now, you still might be a little tired when you wake up. You know, that happens. But, you know, those are some kinds of things you can do. Treat Saturday night special so you can treat Sunday morning special. You know, drink coffee. I don't know. I don't know if you'd like coffee, but, you know, drink a five-hour energy. I don't know. Just get, get you going, you know. Something. Prioritize Sunday mornings and maximize what you do here. Don't treat God casually. We read our Bibles casually. We pray casually. We attend church casually. And I say we here. I use the pronoun we for all three warnings because I'm including myself in this warning. I'm with you on this. This is a battle that I have to wage war on every single week myself. I have to force myself, discipline myself to read the Bible carefully, to pray fervently, to attend church regularly and with, with, with all of my energy and all of my thoughts and all of my emotions. I have to do that. So I'm in this with you. I'm not saying this is your problem alone. This is my problem. This is the entire church's problem. We're in this together. And so where do we begin? Where do we begin? Because it's like, man, that's a lot of things to try to change in my life right now. How do I begin making these changes? Let me suggest this. We must start with the name of Jesus. We must start with the name. I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean, start with the name? The one name to rule them all we've been talking about. Philippians 2.9 says this. God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, here's what the name does. Here's what it should do for you. Every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. We begin there. That's where we begin. Bow the knees of your heart before the name of Jesus and confess that that name is the only name under heaven by which you can be saved. That's where it begins. Have you bowed your knees before the Lord? Have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? Because if you haven't, guess where you are? You're on the wrong side. If you have and you're still struggling, then I recommend the exact same thing. Humble yourself. Bow your knee. Repent. And say, Lord, I want to change. And I confess your name as the only name that can save and sanctify and glorify. You know, I mentioned earlier that Acts 5.1 brings up another name besides Jesus' name. And that name was Ananias. Ananias, right? That was a different name. There was a man named Ananias. I told you what Solomon means. I told you what Jonah means. I told you what Yahweh means. I never told you what Ananias means. You want to know what Ananias means? Ananias means God is gracious. God is gracious. And if you think about it, Ananias really never lived up to his name. He never lived up to his, to his name. He was meant to be someone who displayed the grace of God. But what did he do? He actually robbed God of his grace by robbing from the church. And, and he did so by holding back his own grace. His own grace. All because he didn't take him seriously. 
If only Ananias called on the name of the Lord, he would have been saved. If only he had confessed with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in his heart truly that God raised him from the dead, he would have been saved. But he didn't. He treated God casually. We've all treated God casually. But the encouraging thread that runs through all of this is that God hasn't treated you casually. He hasn't just written you off. He could have. He could have. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 8, actually, Job in Job chapter 7 says, God, why do you take special notice of me? And Job doesn't like God taking special notice of him because it actually means a lot of suffering for him. When God actually is like a hunter and tries to hunt you down. But Psalm 8 tries to correct Job's thinking and it says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him over the work of your hands. You've set him over all the works of your feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, all the birds in the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, you have taken us seriously. And that's a good thing. Because if you hadn't, where would we be? We would be in judgment. So call on the name of the Lord. Call on his name. Admit that his name and his name, name alone has the power to save you from your sins and bring you in a vibrant personal relationship with him. And so let's close our time before his precious name in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much that you are gracious in that because of that, you've taken us seriously. Father, we don't take you seriously. So often we are guilty of treating you casually. God, I pray that we would not be absorbed into casual Christianity, get lost into the mundane Christian life where we confess to be Christians, profess to be Christians, and yet live a life that just doesn't seem to care about you. May we demonstrate such care and concern, such attention to you and your power, your dignity, your glory, your honor, because we love you. We love what you've done for us, but most importantly, we love that you are a God who is grand, who is great, and who is worthy of all praise. As it says in Revelation, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That is our cry from now on and forevermore. So, Lord, convict us in these ways. Help us to see the ways we need to grow as young adults, people who are itching to be closer in relationship with you. Help us in these ways. In Christ's most precious name we pray. Amen.